Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, December 23rd, we are studying Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. The beautiful feet of the messenger appears on the mountains, bearing the good news, your God reigns. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor John Busman. Pastor Busman serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Yeah, thanks so much. It's always good to be with you, and I hope all the listeners are doing very well. So we're in Isaiah 52, Pastor Busman. This is the appointed Old Testament text for Christmas Day, if you're using the three-year lectionary, Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. And in this series on Sharper Iron, we've seen a lot of the book of Isaiah. We've kind of bounced around quite a bit. We've actually looked at two texts already this week, chapter 7 and chapter 9. Very familiar text, I think, when it comes to this time of year. Chapter 52 maybe isn't quite as familiar when it comes to Christmas, even though we often hear it in the three-year lectionary. So knowing that, knowing that we've jumped around the book of Isaiah quite a bit, we're landing in chapter 52 today, we've got Christmas on our minds. Help us set some context in the book of Isaiah. When we jump into chapter 52, what do we need to know about what's going on here? Yeah, thanks. There is a lot of jumping around, it seems, anyway, because Isaiah is a prophet during the 8th century B.C., so the 700s. Uh, you've heard in, in chapter 7 already, he's dealing with uh, during the reign of, of King Ahaz to begin, a wicked King Ahaz. And then as time goes on, he, he's also prophet during Ahaz's son's reign, uh, King Hezekiah, which, you know, in, in my opinion is uh, probably the the best of the kings of uh, Judah after the split. So he even has a, a little bit of up and down and around with dealing with wicked kings and righteous kings. Uh, he's prophesying during the worldly reign of the kingdom of Assyria. So they're the world power at the time. So it may seem a little strange as He's prophesying against judgment of of Babylon because they're they're there, but they're not quite up to par yet. They're not the world power of of the day. But already he's uh, laying down some seeds about what the people would be dealing with. Uh, yet also, in a sense, with their idolatry, already already are. Uh, and, and this text, really the, the chapters from 40 to 55, not that they're free of judgment of God's people, but it really shifts into this mode of, of comfort as chapter 40 begins. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Uh, we hear in Isaiah 39 uh, that Isaiah very explicitly tells Hezekiah, Look, it's not going to be you, but it's going to be your sons who who 
you know, go to exile and Hezekiah very strangely says, oh, what the, the word that you've spoken is good. Well, it's good for Hezekiah because he won't have to endure it, but not so for his sons. So to have this word of comfort already, this word of deliverance, even before anything has happened, uh, reveals quite a bit uh, about who God is as well. So uh, a great text for us in these days as we are very, very near to to Christmas even now to be able to proclaim this good news. One thing I think we would do well to bring out here in the context of Isaiah 52, and you mentioned how chapters 40 through 55 really speak to the comfort, the comfort that's mentioned there at the beginning of chapter 40, and not that judgment is absent, but that theme of comfort is throughout. One of the features of these chapters, which we haven't seen a ton of text from Isaiah in this section, one of the features is the servant of the Lord. Give us a little bit of that context within this and how the servant of the Lord functions and why it's important for what we're going to look at today. Absolutely. So the the servant, there are four servant songs in total in this section from Isaiah to 4055, and then there's another servant song in the following section from 56 to 66. But specifically within chapters 40 through 55, the first servant song that we hear is in chapter 42. And it specifically talks about the servant Israel, God's people, as you know, really what God is requiring of them. And, and what he's requiring is that they renounce these gods of, of Babylon, these gods that are really uh, you know, tied up within creation, these gods that lead by war and bloodshed. He wants them to, to renounce them, to say that they're, that they're nothing, they're empty. But we know as we're led into uh, further into chapter 42, uh, 43, 44, you get this long excursus on idolatry that they, that they fail. They, they don't do this. They give in to the idolatry. So when the, when the page finally turns and we get into chapter 49, we hear of this second servant, this replacement servant, the servant who takes on the identity of Israel, the identity of God's people in order to save Israel. Uh, so you can really see that shift begin in chapter 49. We hear that it is too light a thing that this servant should come to only redeem Jacob. He will make him a light for the nations. Uh, and and he turn the page again, you get to chapter 50, and we see how this servant was received. And he set his face like a flint. Uh, he he hid his face not from disgrace and spitting. He gave his back to those who strike and the cheeks to those who pull out the beard. And our text for Christmas morning is situated just before that fourth servant song. And we finally see how that servant will deliver at the end of chapter 52, moving into chapter 53. But perhaps that's something for uh, a little later, but this text fits right between the third and the fourth uh, servant song about these beautiful feet who come to bring the good news. So to people who would have been living in exile in Babylon, as you said, these these words of Isaiah are spoken ahead of time to those who, who have not yet been taken into exile. He preaches these words of comfort, 
And he's doing that through this servant. And like you said, we, we have to know that this text that we're going to read comes between those those two servant songs, the third and the fourth, and particularly right before that fourth one, which is perhaps the best known of them. And we'll 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 save that, but but we'll get there. But we need to know that so that as we hear this good news that we're talking about at Christmas time, that that we can connect these dots. I mean, you know, and I know it's been a while since I've said this. I think, but we've we've said it often here. Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth evangelist, and I mean these chapters particular, and I think this text fits in it, this is Isaiah proclaiming Christ and his entire ministry to us from his birth, as you see so clearly in chapters 7 and 9, what we've just been looking at, and into these chapters where he he starts to look into his, his death and resurrection. It's all connected for Isaiah, and he's proclaiming Christ for us just so wonderfully, so clearly, and it's very fitting that we we hear a text like this on the celebration of our Lord's birth. Any further comments on Isaiah? Introductory matters before we jump into these verses. Well, it's really you know it's really seeing where this the promised comfort from Isaiah forty. Where does that come from? And Isaiah is pushing us toward you know the comfort is going to come from this servant and comfort not being kind of you know there there everything's going to be okay. But this comfort means complete restoration. Right, returning from exile, everything being back where it needs to be, in order, in place. And that is coming uh, through the servant and that news coming from our text. All right, so let's go ahead then and look at that text. We're in Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That is the text for Christmas Day, Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. Now, Pastor Busman, one of the things that I think stands out just when you're looking at the book of Isaiah on the page is that most editors of the English translations put, say, verses 3 through 6 in prose, but then in verse 7, you get back to poetry, which is the majority of this section of Isaiah. What What's the significance of the move to poetry all of a sudden here in verse 7? Right. This is nice how the how the editors of the text will do this for us to show us this, uh, this shift. You know, we're not just kind of having conversation here. There is poetry, and 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 you know in in translation or anything like this, the the level of difficulty kind of ramps up when you shift out of narrative into into poetry. So it's it automatically causes us to slow down. It, it signals to us that there's there's something going on. It's drawing attention to the text. Uh, different vocabulary is used, and you know even with English poetry, even though we have different different styles and things that we use in English. You, you really get much more imagery and, and and all of that. So 
it's calling attention for us to, uh, you know, especially look, you know, stop, slow down here. Something is happening. You know, the lights are flashing for us to, uh, to pay attention. So we're slowing down to pay attention to this poetry, to appreciate and picture in our minds these images that Isaiah is going to give us. The image here in verse 7 is someone who's walking on a mountain, and even his, his feet are beautiful because he's bringing good news. T- take us into this, this picture that Isaiah is giving us in verse 7. Absolutely. So again... As the text shifts from Isaiah 39 to Isaiah 40, you know, it's comfort for those who would be in exile. And again, you know, we're 150 years before all of this is happening. So it, it may seem strange to the people at the time for Isaiah to be to be using this but or to be speaking this way. But to to talk about uh, beautiful feet, bringing good news, you know, imagine for these people, Jerusalem lying in waste. Imagine for them that the temple has been burned and that they're not home. And you think about the history, the further history of these people having been promised the land, right? To Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. This is these are God's chosen people in his chosen land. And to all of a sudden have that have that stripped away, uh where's their hope? Where's their comfort? Uh, where is it going to come from? And and it only comes from a messenger, right? So the the beautiful feet doesn't mean he's got, you know, these model-like perfect feet, but, you know, you're waiting for some sort of deliverance. It's got to come from somewhere, you know, no email, no text messages at the time. So it's the runner, the one who, uh, who, who, who brings that good news uh, for the people. Right. What makes his feet beautiful is because that's what carries him to the people who need to hear this gospel, this good news. And it really is a, I don't know how well we appreciate this image anymore because news comes to us just like that. We can log onto the internet, pull it up on our phones right then and there. We can see the news whenever we want to. So we have to put ourselves into a position where you know, we're, we're longing for some kind of news. The, I've used this image previously. You can tell me if you've got a, another one, Pastor Busman, of you know, grandparents who are waiting for a phone call that their grandchild has been born. Or, or I mean, that that's about as close as I can come to this sense of longing, this waiting for good news. That's something that we would we would experience today. But that that longing for that good news when it finally comes, that means that the one who bears it has these beautiful feet. Which you know, I mean, goodness, particularly at a time like Isaiah is living in. You know, feet are not going to be beautiful things. <laughs> That's why they need to be washed when when you get to someone's house. And yet, because of this wonderful news that he bears, his feet are in fact beautiful. And that that news really, I think, takes center stage. Isaiah says it twice in this one verse. He he's bringing good news. Right, the good news that, of course, you know, God is returning to Zion. Uh, back home and that that he is king right within the babylonian religion there there was all this all this fighting uh over who was king you know at the time it was marduk was was the chief the chief king and they actually even proclaimed in the babylonian religion right uh marduk masuru marduk 
Marduk is king and he would go to battle and he would fight. So Isaiah brings up all this, you know, battle and fighting imagery in the, in the later chapters of, of his book. But uh, yeah, God is, God is the one who is reigning. People are being delivered. He's the one bringing peace. Yeah. The, here in Isaiah, the good news, this message that is brought by this one with beautiful feet, the message is your God reigns or your God is king, which would have been a fantastic comfort for people in exile. How easy it would have been for them to wonder, does the Lord, does Yahweh actually reign because here we are in exile. We've seen Jerusalem ransacked. We've seen the temple burned and torn down. Does God actually reign? And for the prophet Isaiah to picture this messenger proclaiming, yes, in fact, your God does reign. That's, that's particular, as you said, in the context of, of the Babylonian religion and the way that that message of the Babylonian religion would have been just a constant you know, beating down upon the head of the faithful Israelites. This is good news, that that God, your God, the Lord, Yahweh, he is in fact king. And we see this, I mean, you can take us elsewhere in Scripture, Pastor Bussman, this, this is a, a big theme throughout the Scriptures, that God is the one who in fact reigns. Yeah, I think it's mentioned for the first time that God would reign. I believe it's actually all the way into Exodus it may be in the in the Song of Moses after they come through the Red Sea in chapter 15. You'd have to check me there. But it talks about God reigning forever and ever. And this is the first time that, that God is actually mentioned as king. And this is made a big deal of. I mean, the people know this. They understand this all the way up until the time of, of the judges when all of a sudden in those days there was no king in Israel, right? They had abandoned God. And then they replaced him with, with Saul. Yet through that very thing, uh, you know, God would establish the line of David. And as David speaks, right, this is what makes David different. You know, David refers to himself as the as the prince of Israel, not as the king of Israel, but as the prince. And that's a very uh, interesting thing, but probably for, for another time. But God reigning, and this can also be translated here, your God has become king, which you know, might be strange because we know that God is king and he's he's always uh, living and, and, and reigning. But, you know, for a time, Israel didn't very clearly see that. And I think we have a lot of connections in our own lives here that, you know, is it is it clear that, that God is reigning? But this brings about the also the image for us of redemption, that, yes, God is is reigning as king. Uh, but at this point, he would assert his dominion uh, once again over uh, over Babylon. And there are plenty of other examples of, of this as well as we move on in the scriptures and into the New Testament. Jesus with the parable of binding the strong man. Right? Yeah, there's one strong who might be prince over this world, but but he will, you know, he will be bound and just like here, God will assert his dominion uh, once again. It's the, the, I guess the scandal of this whole thing is how he chooses to assert that 
dominion. And that's, you know, being situated here between the third and the fourth servant song is, is, you know, brings, brings to light how he's going to do that. As I mean, the other place that you can really see this theme of God reigning is in the proclamation that's found in the Gospels. It comes from John the Baptist. It comes from Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, which might be better translated the reign of God or the rule of God is at hand. Repent because God is here reigning. And as you said, the scandal of it, and, and you know, I know this may be getting slightly ahead of ourselves, but it's hard not to mention it here, is how God actually reigns. And perhaps the example that comes to mind most quickly during this time of the year is to think of the Epiphany text with the Magi, where they come to Jerusalem and they say, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Well, he's not found there in the capital. He's found in, in Bethlehem, and a star has to lead him. And then, of course, when you get to the end of Matthew's gospel, where is it that Jesus is labeled king of the Jews, but on the cross. And, and there's the scandal of how God actually does reign among us, which again, this is what Isaiah is doing here, situating this between the third and fourth servant songs, reminding us that, and we're going to see it later in this text too, how, how God does reign. He reigns in what looks like weakness for the purpose of saving us sinners. Yeah, those are, those are great images. And you know, not to go off on a, on a tangent like I so easily do, but, you know, you bring up the wise men, how, how they actually do show up in Jerusalem first, and they ask the actual one who was proclaiming to be king of the Jews, they ask him, where is, you know, where is he? It's like, well, uh, I don't know, you know, tell, you know, go find him and, and, uh, and tell me. But, you know, within the, the scandal for immediately goes on in Isaiah because the one who would deliver them was actually Cyrus. You know, this pagan who, you know, nobody expected, uh, really. So um, reigning through what appears to be weakness, according to the world. Before we leave verse 7, Pastor Busman, just briefly at least, remind us, because we see this show up in the New Testament. I know, well, maybe we can connect it to Christmas. We see Paul quote from this section of Isaiah in Romans 10. How does Paul make use of it? And what does I don't know. I, I, I'm just thinking about now. Does that connect to Christmas? We can connect anything. You That's give right. us enough time, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, Paul does quote this in in Romans, in Romans chapter ten, uh, with, uh, but he he leaves out the line uh, upon the mountains, right? At, at the point in, in, of Romans, the uh, the word is is broader than just returning to, to Jerusalem. We've heard the, the call in the book of Acts, you know, beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The, the other interesting thing that he does is he replaces the line, the message of peace, simply with uh, the word of Christ. And, you know, it's not that he's altering the text or anything. It, it's really parallel to it. The message of peace is the word of Christ, and we see that again. Well, let's do the gospel for Christmas Day. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's only only through Christ that this true peace is is found. So Paul makes that connection. Uh, you know, Luke in his gospel, you know, where the where the Christmas texts are found, are making this connection. Glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it's all over the place. 
Yeah, Paul Paul talks about this in in connection with those who go to preach the gospel today. And and again, what is it that your pastor proclaims? It is this good news that God reigns. And well, how do you know that God reigns? Because that is the word of Christ. I mean, that's that's the move, right? Your God reigns. Where do we see that? We see that in Christ, in him. The reign of God is at hand, and it's still at hand for you and for me as as we hear that word proclaimed still today. And so, you know, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the, the feet of him who brings good news. Your, your pastor has beautiful feet because he's proclaiming the word of Christ to you. And, and that's, I mean, that's just a, a fantastic thing to see here in, in Isaiah 52 and Romans 10 as well. And for us, especially in these days, as we, I mean, we're, we're more like the people of Isaiah's day than we, than we actually realize. It's why we, you know, especially in these days, encourage being near to the word because, you know, now probably more than in a century, it, it, it looks completely like God isn't reigning, that, he, that everything is out of control. But, but we continue to put our faith in that word uh, of God, that he is indeed reigning and reigning for the good of the church. Yeah, this is a word of comfort that we need in these gray and latter days to know that no matter what we see, that our God does reign, and we have that confidence every time we hear the word of Christ crucified, risen, ascended, proclaimed for us. I think we're going to go ahead and take our break right there, Pastor Busman. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, December 23rd. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. We've got Pastor John Busman with us. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, prior to the break, we looked at verse 7. Those messengers who have beautiful feet because they bear the good news. They proclaim the gospel that your God reigns. God does rule in his son, Jesus Christ. And so verse 8 continues the picture. These here's the, here's the picture. These watchmen are coming over the mountains and there's people watching for them because they want to hear this good news. They long to hear this good news. And so now the the watchmen too are going to join in this proclamation. They're going to start in fact singing because they're seeing these messengers coming with this great news. Take us into verse 8, Pastor Busman. Sure. Uh, the the use of watchmen is a hopeful thing in and of itself. And, and again, this is kind of a disconnect that we probably have with people in the eighth eighth century BC. As we, you know, we don't necessarily have city gates and walls and and watchmen anymore the way they did. But the fact that there are watchmen present 
gives people hope because at the time, you know, that that the prophecy would actually come to pass again, there were no walls of Jerusalem. There was no temple, right? So there, where do the watchmen, where do the watchmen proclaim what they're seeing from if, if they have no place to stand above and look out? So just the image here already begins to, to speak of restoration. The watchmen are lifting up their voices, singing, uh, singing for joy. And then with both eyes, they will see when Yahweh returns to Zion. And you have to ask, you know, at this point, uh, you know, what does what does that mean? What does that look like? Because we also hear in the scriptures that seeing Yahweh face to face isn't such a good thing for for sinners. It, it, it means it means death unless something has happened, unless something has has taken place. And this is where the the comfort, the restoration comes. So unless unless Yahweh has restored his people, this means something worse than exile. It means their death. But the fact that they've been forgiven, the fact that they've been restored, this is cause for much for much joy for the people. Yahweh's return brings uh, joy again and not destruction. It brings life and not death. So there's reason for these watchmen to uh, cry out in joy and, and sing for happiness. Well, and even it, that phrase there at the end of verse 8, the return of the Lord to Zion, to maybe back it up even a step further, invites us to consider, well, why did the Lord leave in the first place? Because I, I, I think that's a connected issue to what you're talking about with, well, how is this going to be good news? If he left, in the, well, why did he leave in the first place, Pastor Busman, and how those things go together? Well, let's, let's tie, up, tie in some prophets here. It's Ezekiel that really gives us a, a, a clear image of what's happening here. Ezekiel is uh, an exilic prophet, right? He's prophesying during the time of the exile. And in chapter 10, he speaks, or his image is that the glory of the Lord departs Jerusalem. And this would have been 587, 586 BC when the Babylonians tore down the temple. But when he ends his prophecy, uh, you know, he sees everything restored and the glory of the Lord returning uh, to the temple. Isaiah, if we can stay with with the prophet uh, of whom uh, we are we are speaking here, at the beginning of chapter fifty, Isaiah says, "Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away?" So <laughs> I think it was. I think it was actually Dr. Reed Lessing, who I'll quote again in a little bit, who, who says, you know, Israel was so wrapped up in idolatry. They had gone after all of these other gods and abandoned the way uh, of God that uh, God uh, left the house. He, 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 he left the door and slammed it shut. Uh, but that didn't mean he's gone forever. Right. Where's your mother's certificate of divorce? He he has not signed her off forever. Might have gone away because of their idolatry, but he is coming back. 
I mean, this is what the exile is for the people. Uh, Jeremiah prophesies that it would be 70 years before they would return. But God promised never to leave or forsake his, uh, his, his children. Uh, chapter 43 says, uh, chapter 43, verse 1 says, uh, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. You belong to me, and when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. So he's called them by name. They belong to him. Uh, he, he's, co he's coming back for them. But again, right, the wages of sin is death. You can't get around it. People don't have the excuse to do whatever they want whenever they want. There is punishment for sin. But God will call them and restore them once again. Right, and, and it is that experience of the exile that, really drives them finally to that repentance. I mean, I don't know if you mentioned the Book of Lamentations, but when you read the Book of Lamentations, you see the utter despair of the people of Israel. You get that glimmer of hope in the middle of chapter 3 of the Book of Lamentations, but chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 are just filled with complete, well, maybe despair is a, a, too strong of a word, but they're, they're distraught over what has happened to their homeland. And they're, they've been brought to that place where the return of the Lord is not the return of the Lord to put them in their place again, but to, as, as Isaiah prophesies in that very first part of this section in chapter 40, to give them double, to restore to them double, not to give them twice as much punishment, but to restore double. So that they've, in the exile, they've been brought to that place where the return of the Lord to Zion that's the best thing that they could hear. And I mean, this this ties in with some of the other images we've seen in Isaiah with the, the idea of the way being prepared, that you've, you've this, this road needs to be made level so that the Lord can come, so that the people can return, so that they can again rejoice together in this restoration that only the Lord can bring to his people. You said despair, and I, I was going to say despair is probably a, a generous, a generous <laughs> term for what the, I mean, he, I mean, he, he, in chapter one, he likens the city to a widow who is in distress, weeping bitterly in the night, tears on her cheeks with none to comfort her. I mean, nobody to comfort in the time of the exile. So the fact that she's not only at this point comforted, but doubly comforted, uh, you know, really shows, really shows the, the love and the care that God does have for his people even even in the fact that he would return right we see this with uh, with Jesus after the crucifixion and resurrection he departs to the tomb he comes back to his disciples and you know is that a good thing or a bad thing is he coming back in vengeance or is he he coming back in in love and what does he say peace be with you so you know there are there are dots that can be connected all over the place here with the prophet Isaiah. The the image here, as I'm, I'm reading through this text again, you know, it's to pick up on the singing in verse 8. It's like the you've got this messenger who's coming back with this good news, and he says to Zion, your God reigns, and that good news begins the song. And I, I, I'd like to think that that messenger sang, your God reigns too. So, so you've got this, this message of good news that is sung. And then that leads the watchmen to sing in verse 8, which 
then the singing just keeps growing. This is just fantastic. When God comes, the, the joy grows, the singing grows, so that even by verse 9 now, even the waste places of Jerusalem are singing along with that messenger and the watchman. Start start bringing us into verse 9, Pastor Busman. Sure, the, the, the singing does. As you said, uh, it grows. And, and another Christmas image. Think about the angels to the shepherds, right? You have the the angels beginning to sing, and and then the whole heavenly host joins in. And now even we, you know, in the church today, as we gather each and every Sunday, we join in singing that song too, just as the church has uh, for all time. Glory be to God on high and on earth, uh, peace, goodwill toward men. So the singing does uh, grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And the image, look, right there, Jerusalem has been destroyed. Waste places but since God has comforted, since God has restored, it too uh, bursts forth in shouts of joy. There are echoes here of Psalm 98, which is basically the, the base text of, of the hymn, Joy to the World. Mm-hmm. Right? Joy to the World is, is a, a hymn of, of restoration of all things. It's as, much, uh, it's as much an end of the church here hymn as it is a, as it is a Christmas hymn that that, that the king has come, uh, all things are being renewed, all things are being restored through uh, God's reign, comforting his people. Again, um, the people are not bound to their current circumstances. And I think this is something so important for us to hear even in these days. You look out and you see what do you see. And, you know, if you if you dwell on it, if you're just watching and reading the news or on social media or whatever, it, there, there's not a lot of hope there. Day by day goes by, and, and it doesn't look like we're going to be delivered at all. But this provides us hope for restoration. that We are not bound to today. Our king is, is, is returning. He's coming to us to restore us, uh, to save us. So... And, and look, the historical context again, these things wouldn't come to pass for almost 150 years, right? The, the, the exile for the northern kingdom hasn't even happened, but rejoicing can already begin because God doesn't wait 150 years to start reigning. He's reigning even now. So even before the restoration, they can already begin singing and rejoicing together. I'm glad you brought up the end times, the nature of this text, and Psalm 98 and the hymn Joy to the World, because I do think, I mean, as we're reading this, you can really see how a text like this, we're reading it here 2,000 years after our Lord's death, resurrection, and ascension, and, and man, that's that's where my mind is going. It, it helps that Philip Nikolai wrote his hymn, Wake Awake for Night is Flying, and he talks about watchmen singing to Zion in stanza two of that hymn. So every time I hear watchmen who are singing, I, I can't help but think of that hymn and the end times that it it brings up in that hymn. I mean, to say all that, though, uh, to make the point that you're making, that we rejoice even now, even before the last day has come, we are singing in anticipation of the victory that our Lord has won by his death and his resurrection, and that we know that he will deliver in its utter fullness on the last day when he raises us from the dead, we still sing. We join in the hymn 
of the angels, glory be to God on high. We join in the hymn of all creation. This is the feast of victory of our God. I mean, we sing these hymns of praise ahead of time because that's how secure the victory is. That's how real it is that our God does in fact reign when, when maybe it looks like in the world around us, he's not. No, he is. And so we sing his praises. We, we burst forth, forth into joy even now before the final victory is delivered on the last day. And that doesn't mean that there's no place for lamentation. There's plenty right. of place for lament. There's plenty of time to, to look out and, and, you know, maybe not be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. We're, we're told that the world would ultimately do this, but, you know, we can look out and say, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget us forever? Hmm. But then to turn back to, to not end there, right. To push forward and, and to know with full confidence that, that our God does reign, that Christ, our Lord has come, that, you know, he, he was crucified, died, and was buried, that he did rise again from the dead, and that belongs to us. And no one can take that away from us. Uh, no plague, pestilence, right? You brought up wake awake for night is flying. I mean, that was written during a, during a plague, right? And this is, we're, we're so interconnected with not only the people of the church, but the people of, uh, you know, God's people of all time. And, and, the, the more we learn, the more we grow, and the more we begin to see that, the more the scriptures pop open, and, and, and we can see that, no, we're not alone. God has been with his people of all time. We're more connected with them as we go through whatever we go through, yet it's the same word that brings comfort to us as it did to them. And that's so astonishing that, that we don't have to alter these texts or anything to be relevant to us today that the word stands the word of the lord endures forever uh, as as isaiah 40 right it's, it's all the way back there uh, the grass the, the grass withers the flower fades but it's the word of our god that will stand forever verse 10 then brings another image to mind so we've been seeing how the message brought by the messenger just starts this chain reaction of singing because your god reigns and verse 10 then is, is really going to expand that singing and joy and the seeing of this everywhere. But now it's, it's going to put into our minds a picture of what it means that God reigns. And so verse 10 says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. Give us that image, Pastor Busman, and, and what does it mean? I'll ask the question like I asked uh, my people in class uh, sometimes the, the Lord bared his holy arm. Is this a good or a bad thing? And I get kind of both answers from people. And, and that's right. It, it can be both. And, and even God's people have seen it from the flip side. In Ezekiel chapter four, the Lord bared his arm in, in vengeance and judgment. But now he's bearing his holy arm in, in their favor against their enemies, bearing his holy arm as an act of salvation. Uh, this is one of the main themes that picks up in the book of, of Exodus with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm. I have saved you. So the Lord bearing his arm this time is an act of uh, their salvation. And, and who sees it? 
all the ends of the earth. Uh, another major theme for Isaiah, all people, the ends of the earth. Everyone will see the salvation of our God. So it looks like this, this majestic, you know, mountaintop watchman crying out, all the heavenly host, you know, joining in this kind of thing that that our God reigns. He's he's glowing on top of this mountain with the beams of the sun shining on, on him in this picture. So it looks like it looks like glory, you know, at, at the end of all things. And again, back to the beginning, this is where kind of the scandal comes because we 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 see what God reigning actually will look like when the servant does make his appearance. Well, right. I mean, so the idea here is that you know, here, here's the the messenger who's returned. The watchmen are singing. The waste places are singing. Everybody's singing to see that the Lord has bared his holy arm. And so you're you're looking. Here's the Lord. He's going to bear his, his arm. He's going to roll up his sleeves, get to work of doing the work of, of reigning, of ruling over everything. And, and what do you see? Well, you have angels who tell the shepherds, the Savior that you're looking for, go go find a baby boy who's wrapped up in some strips of cloth and he's lying in a feeding trough. What? <laughs> that That's where the Savior of the world is? I mean, because this is a Christmas text. Uh, and, and, you know, again, to, to take it to where we started, right after this, in just a few verses in 52.13, you're going to get the servant of the Lord there again in that climactic servant song for this section in Isaiah, the one that we're familiar with primarily from Good Friday. And, and we get those those wonderful hymns from there, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, a lamb goes uncomplaining for. That's God bearing his holy arm, rolling up his sleeves, doing the work of reigning over all creation by dying for all creation. And that's the wonder and the beauty and the majesty. And in fact, the glory of this text, it doesn't look like glory to you and to me. It's not what we would have imagined, but it is in fact his glory to reign in precisely that way. And, and, and like I said, you know, it's right there upon the mountain. Uh, Golgotha, not with rays of light, but with darkness. And again, to kind of piggyback on on the image of Christmas, you know, this baby wrapped in a few strips of cloth, this is your king. And the same thing could be said for Good Friday, as he's not in a manger, but in a tomb wrapped in cloths. Like this, this is it. This is your king. And you can begin to imagine just like the people of Isaiah's day, the despair of the destruction of of the temple, Christ's body. This is it. What, what's you know what, what what's what's going to happen? What's what's next? Uh, Jesus, what does he do? I mean, he returns, like here in Isaiah. Your God reigns. Peace to you, restoration, uh, comfort for us. Yeah, and the Lord does this for all to see, for all the nations, all the ends of the earth, to see this, the salvation of our God. And we've seen this theme come up in several of the Isaiah texts that we've looked at in this series. The one that stands out to me first is from Isaiah 11, where 
that root of Jesse stands as a signal or a banner for the people that all would see it. And it, it sounds like Isaiah, although he doesn't use the exact same language, he's drawing on a similar image here that this is where you're going to see the salvation of our God. And it's hope. I mean, again, I, I can't say this enough. Hope for Isaiah's time, hope for uh, the time in the life and ministry of Jesus, and, and hope for us as we now sit in this in this age of of, of darkness uh, to know that yes, our God still reigns. Christ is coming as we celebrate the birth of our Lord in a couple of days. We see that His first advent promise being kept confirms that his second advent promise is going to be kept uh, as well. Uh, Just to quote uh, Dr. Lessing once again, uh, I I don't remember if this was written in his commentary or if this was a class note or, or whatever, Uh, but he said uh, real presence means real victory. So the fact that our God is coming to us and has come to us gives us the assurance of the victory, even more so as we gather for worship. And this is what makes presence so important. As we gather for worship, we hear his word, we receive his most holy, uh, precious sacrament in the body and blood of Christ. That real presence for us is a promise of, of victory. God has actually become flesh. I mean, imagine this. The, the, the author of creation took on flesh for us to come to be with us. Again, not to pat us on the back, not that kind of comfort, but to bring about our restoration through the forgiveness of sins, through his reign and rule uh, that he established for us uh, on the cross. And what a wondrous thing that he does come in our own flesh. He comes as a human being just like us. You were talking about how the return of God to Zion could be a frightening thing, that when people see God in the scriptures, they're usually afraid that they're about to die. Isaiah has that very experience in chapter 6 of this book. So how does God come among us? He comes as one of us in a way that he will come not to destroy us, but come to save us, as his own name means, Jesus, the Savior. What a what a astounding mystery and wonder that this is how God chooses to come and does so in a way such that he doesn't kill us or condemn us, but he gives us life and he saves us. What what a fantastic thing. Pastor Buston, we've got about three minutes here to to wrap things up for this text, for for the series, thinking about Advent with the prophets and, and the Christmas, which we're just going to celebrate in a couple of days, help us wrap things up this morning. Sure. As far as the uh, the near in time fulfillment to, of this text, the people would return from exile. And again, what do they expect? Um, glory, life, forevermore. But the reality was when they returned from exile they they had chaos within judea they were fighting they got home and there was no davidic king sitting on the throne they were instead still paying tribute to cyrus of persia and then darius and artaxerxes and then greece to alexander and 
his generals, Ptolemy and Seleucus, moving into Rome. Of course, Augustus, we all know, and Tiberius. And as time went on, it, it still didn't look like this word was, was coming to pass. But in the fullness of time, Paul says in Galatians, God sent forth his son. And Jesus came into this world announcing that the reign and the rule of God was at hand. Your God is here. Your God reigns. But of course, his reign was was met with hostility from his very birth. Our world in this day has its own king, but Christ is the only true king. Even though it may not look like it, uh, he does. He does reign. And today, to take away from this text. We can announce this victory already, as Isaiah does in chapter 52, even though we're long, potentially, from the end. We can thank God and rejoice in him today for what he'll do tomorrow. He's working things out. So in these days, remain in the word, remain in the sacrament, rejoicing that Christ our Lord who reigns will crush our foes in the last. We will live and reign with him forever and ever. Pastor John Busman is the pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama, helping us this morning with Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. Pastor Busman, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much, everybody. Merry Christmas. Your God reigns. This is the gospel, the gospel that the beautiful feet of your pastor will be proclaiming to you in the coming days of Christmas. KFU is going to be taking a break here from regular programming during the 12 days of Christmas. Sharper Iron will be back on January 7th with a brand new series going through the gospel according to St. Mark. From my family to yours, have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again in the new year.